0: Good morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It is somehow only
1: Wednesday. Only Wednesday. And you are watching am to dl Oh, Liz Lemon. Okay, so uh, last night was wild. I know we are a morning show, but last night was one of those evenings that I was like, maybe we need to like go on, <laughs> talk about what's going on on the timeline. It was happening. It, it was, was all happening, and it was happening quickly. Quickly. Okay, so step one. We have to own the fact that this is an extraordinary news cycle. Mm-hmm. This is unusual, and I think it's important for us to say that. Uh, this is one of those moments, you know, I felt like this uh, perhaps after the Charlottesville mm-hmm. uh, riots and protests, you know, where I was glued to my phone. I want to read everything I can. I want to learn as much as I can. I'm tweeting questions, you know, for, mm-hmm. for stories and everything because there's just so much to take in.
0: It's a crisis.
1: Yeah. It's a crisis. We're not going to pretend otherwise and we're going to focus on the border for most of the top of our show this morning. So here's what was going on last night though. It was like, girl, we had the ranch. The timeline was like giving us everything. We had Kirsten Nielsen mm walking into that Mexican restaurant Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. and walking her ass right on out. A choice! A
0: choice for dinner (laughs) by that woman. Girl, I don't Mm -hmm. know who she thought she
1: was fooling, so that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, like, absurd. I'm going to put that in the absurd box. I like that, I like that. And then we got to, like, the depressingly mean box with Corey Lewandowski saying, womp, womp, um, when, you know, someone was telling the story of a 10-year-old girl with Down syndrome um, being separated from... Womp, womp?
0: Saying womp, it's so disgusting. I'm sure you've all seen the clip already. It was fucking infuriated
1: the word deplorable comes Mm. to mind um and then we went from that to just like heartbreaking right before i was like okay i'm calling it a night rachel maddow uh you know watching in real time as she you know was processing that ap news about tender age facilities we'll talk about that in a moment um and and breaking down and it was like girl same here we are yeah Whew, so let's break it down we're gonna go through these three hits you ready girl put on your bulletproof wigs Kirsty nielsen getting served here's what jp brahmer had to say about her as a mexican american who worked in a mexican restaurant Kirsten nielsen reminds me of like half our customers mm. racists love mexican food they like mispronouncing our menu items and making you do their order over again
0: he added i had that conundrum when i was a kid like so how can they hate us? But Mexican is their favorite food. But then you figure out how being a brown person works and it's like, oh right. They think both Mexicans and your food exist
1: for them in the first place. And I, I just really appreciate kind of the nuance that that uh, JP brought to that Absolutely. bizarre, you're like, why would she go? I also wondered, listen, I can't read Kirsten Gilson's, uh mind and sure Gillerson's mind. I don't want to. It seems like a scary place. Um, but I was wondering, like, is this a stunt? Like that restaurant again, a Mexican restaurant. After everything that's going, very on. very close to the White House. Yeah, it's like just a few blocks, I believe, from the White House. It just like seemed like such a choice, mm-hmm. and it made me think of Mike Pence, who also another stunt queen, uh, who loved, you know, walking into Hamilton, mm-hmm. you know, when you're kind of like uh, read the room, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know going to that football game and then leaving like within minutes. I feel yeah. like you know you just wonder.
0: Yeah. I mean, Listen, this is an administration that really knows how to make television, Mm -hmm. Um, and I know Kirsten all of a sudden is getting praise from President Trump, where he had been withholding that for a little while, so maybe she decided. We can't read her mind. We can't read her mind. But it sure was a choice, and I won't lie, it was kind of nice to watch her walk on back to that SUV. Shame.
1: Shame. Here's a tweet from CNN speaking of shame, which at one point paid Corey Lewandowski to regularly appear on its network. Womp, womp, while appearing on Fox News, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski dismissed the story of a 10-year-old girl with Down syndrome who was reportedly separated from her mother at the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. Uh, Okay, so step one, CNN keep it cute. Jeff Zucker, keep it cute. Because, again, I mean, people like Corey Lewandowski have regularly appeared. I know he's not doing this currently, but they have regularly appear, appeared. He used to get the- paid
0: by CNN. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now he's like, he's got like that Harvard, like, Institute Fellowship. You're just like, how are these people who are so toxic, obnoxious, and frankly heartless, continue to be given platforms?
0: And, again, we are talking about a former Trump campaign manager mm-hmm. here. Now, often when a story like this breaks, we start looking for tweets mm-hmm. to kind of talk about it, people that are discussing it in a smart way yeah. in a thoughtful way oftentimes in a funny way yeah. uh, when it came to this moment with Corey Lewandowski the only tweets we found
1: said fuck you fuck you fuck you fuck you what the fuck fuck for fuck's sake it was just there wasn't a lot to fuck you yeah mm-hmm. and uh, I agree I say womp womp is the sound he will hear when he enters hell
0: there you go That's and then the news hit Rachel Maddow here's what Jarrett Hill had to say about that moment Watching Rachel Maddow not even be able to speak, but literally break down crying, talking about Trump's latest development of, quote, tender age detainment of seemingly infants to toddlers has me a little shaken, sad, and disturbed. It was hard to watch. To which I say same, and it was. It was very hard to watch if you've seen this clip. Um, Rachel Maddow knows how to make good TV. Mm -hmm. She's very good at what she does. Mm -hmm. Uh, But many people who have been longtime fans were talking about how they have never seen her break down like this. And I wanna be really clear about what happened, right? It's an AP update. This piece of paper gets slid to her. Mm -hmm. And we've been in this situation before. You don't know what's written in the prompter. You don't know what's written on the page. And you can really see it as she's reading it. It was a gut punch, it hit her in the soul and she cannot get the words out of her mouth.
1: And I wanna say I appreciate it because one, you know, that's difficult to do. Like she, you know, tweeted that she was frustrated that she did not intend to like cry on camera, that she didn't want to become like the center of that moment, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I appreciate journalists who are both doing their jobs, you know, analyzing, reporting the news and also being human. And again, reflecting back to us that this is a, uh, you know, terribly extraordinary Circumstance, um, and I, I'm frustrated by people acting as if like this is just a normal turn of events, and like people like Cora Lewandowski, in stark contrast, like can treat these situations and these stories like a joke, womp womp. So it it, it meant a lot to see someone, you know, as as talented and self-aware as Rachel Maddow, like own her humanity in that moment, because a lot of people aren't.
0: Veteran journalists are having a hard time mm-hmm. with these stories, and let's keep talking about media and its coverage of immigration. Here's a new story from BuzzFeed News senior national correspondent John Stanton. Since the 2014 surge, the critical coverage of the government's handling of immigrants and asylum seekers has never let up, and there's been nothing sudden about the media's interest in Trump's approach to immigration. They've been covering the story.
1: They've been covering the story. Pay attention. It's been there. Well, John Stanton has the receipts about that coverage and joins us now. John, good morning. Hey, how y'all doing? We're doing all right under the circumstances. So your piece highlights two main arguments being used by Trump surrogates to basically deflect outrage about family separation. Um, What are those two arguments?
2: I mean, basically, the one is that, you know, this is something that was kind of started by the Obama administration and there's nothing new to this. Um, And then it's kind of also related to the second one, which is, you know, the media never covered anything that was going on during Obama for, you know, unclear reasons, I guess, some reason, maybe a media conspiracy, they don't ever really say why. Um, but then they do say this is, you know, in a, just a media effort to, to bring down Donald Trump. And, you know, I think both of those things are completely, they're, they're obvious lies and untethered to reality. Um, you know, if you go back and look at like the coverage, I was writing stories in 2014, 2015, 2016, last year, this year, on immigration. There are hundreds of reporters that have been doing a lot of work on this um, and being very critical of first the Obama, Obama administration and now the the Trump administration and. You know, I think it bears repeating that what the Trump administration is doing now is new. It is a decision they've made, and it is, like, a very serious human rights um, crisis because, you know, they don't have to separate families from their children. They can release them. That's what they were doing last year. Um, You know, this is all on them.
0: This is all on them. Uh, Is there anything that the Obama administration does have to own on this policy, though?
2: Oh, yeah, there's plenty. I mean, you know, the the White House, for instance, uh, or DHS Secretary uh, Jay Johnson, I should say, in um, 2015, decided that it was, they were going to claim that migrant mothers and children were national security threats in order to detain them and deport them more quickly. Um, you know, the, the, the Obama administration never took seriously efforts to try to uh, reform the system. They they didn't try to do anything administratively. You know, they basically set the stage for what Trump has done. So they absolutely do own part of this. But again, you know, they did one thing. Trump has taken it to a much higher level. That is, um, I think, anything beyond what anyone had anticipated. Being
1: done, mm-hmm. and John, you know, I, I know you have been covering, uh, you know, immigration at the border for years now. You have traveled with migrants making their way from Central America, trying to get to the United States. Um, and so, I just wanted to ask you, as someone who has, you know, been on the ground and spoken to people for years about what's going on, and now seeing what's happening as a result of zero tolerance, um, what stands out to you in terms of uh, the the intensity of the
2: crisis? Um. I think what it stands out the most is is um, the the gloves are off for the CBP and for ICE. You know, there was one thing that that, that the Obama administration did do was to kind of curb some of the more um, extreme excesses that a lot of the agents, frankly, in both of those agencies um, have. And and you know, they are the largest police force in the United States. They see themselves not even as a police force, but as a paramilitary force, which is in a lot of ways above the the law and above scrutiny from the press and from the public. And, you know, the Obama administration did a lot of really bad things, but that part of it was kept at least moderately in check. And, you know, Trump has basically said explicitly that he's taking the gloves off of them. And that means that you have literally children being pulled away from their mothers. And, you know, it is creating this really, really bad crisis because people are going to continue to try to come into the United States. What's going to end up happening is they're going to start using some of the most dangerous routes uh, imaginable, like going through the Sonoran Desert. And, and that's going to end up with thousands of people dying. Wow. So that's where we are. It only becomes more
1: dangerous. Well, John, as always, thank you for your reporting and for joining us this morning. Good hey to
0: And yeah, let's talk about how it is becoming more dangerous and what this policy means for migrants in Mexico who are seeking asylum. World editor at BuzzFeed News Miriam Elder tweeted this quote from a mother considering crossing into the U.S. If they take my son
1: from me, I would die. That mother was speaking with BuzzFeed News Mexico bureau chief Carla Zapludovsky, who filed this piece last night, um, and we really wanted to share it with all of you. Migrants hesitate at the border fearing for their children.
0: Fearing for their children. Linda Hill highlighted this aspect of the story. Most of the families affected are from Central America, where gangs frequently extort small businesses, forcibly recruit preteen kids, and burn houses down as a form of punishment for those who don't comply with their Okay. And so, Carla was down there in Mexico. She spoke with four families, migrants that are on uh, the Mexico side of the border. They're being held in a facility. Uh, They've attempted to cross the border. And they're basically wondering, should they attempt to cross again, especially because of this new policy? But it's important to know where they are coming from. She spoke with a woman from Guatemala whose brother had been brutally murdered by a gang. And so, literally... It's a
1: cliche, but stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right, and it's important to highlight, because on this side of the border, we have a president who is saying, you know, they're coming with children because they're smuggling children in, they're coming in because they are rapists who want to attack U.S. citizens, um, because they are murderers or they're uh, MS-13 gang members, and that's their intent. So I think it's so important that there are stories and reporters like Carla highlighting this is actually what's going on Mm -hmm. on that side of the border.
0: And again, personalizing the story. This is what another mother had to say, I'd rather live under a bridge with my son than be separated for him um it all i can think about is give me your tired give me your poor yeah. Give me your huddled, yearning masses, earning, like yearning to breathe free. And it's like, well, now they can't come to America because they're scared. Yes. There's also rumors that are going around there now because of this policy. Carlos spoke with somebody that said that they've heard that when the children are taken, that they are immediately put up for adoption. Mm. Um, and one might argue that this is exactly what the Trump
1: administration wants. Right. It seems like an intentional part of their pro- pro- policy. And that's what Stephen Miller has certainly been saying. I also wanted to say I've been wondering, as we've been talking about the crisis, what this means for LGBT. Refugees, um, you know, fleeing uh, Central America, also in very perilous situations. What does it mean when asylum and applying for asylum, which is what these people are trying to do, many of them, has essentially been criminalized? You know, so that's another aspect. Well, we're tweeting out Carla's story right now. Please read and share it.
0: And let's turn now to action that is being taken against this Trump administration policy. BuzzFeed News Justice reporter Zoe Tillman tweeted, here come the family separation lawsuits. A Guatemalan woman who says she's been separated from her seven-year-old son while seeking asylum filed suit today. And New York Governor
1: Andrew Cuomo said they're planning to sue as well. Zoe Tillman joins us now. Uh, Zoe, good morning. Good morning. All right. So what can you tell us about the new lawsuit that was filed yesterday?
3: So this lawsuit was filed on behalf of a Guatemalan woman uh, who crossed about a month ago uh, from Arizona across the border into Arizona uh, with her seven-year-old son. Uh, They did not cross at a port of entry, but said that when they were approached by border agents, she sought asylum, talking about violence and threats that she and her son had faced Back at home. Um, she was, they were both detained together. And after several days, they were separated. Um, and they've been separated since then. Uh, the woman is in the middle of asylum proceedings. She was not criminally charged. She's been released on bond. Um, but her son, to her knowledge, is still detained. And she, doesn't know exactly where he is. She says they haven't given her any information. So she has filed a lawsuit um, seeking to be reunited with her son and she filed an emergency motion last night seeking immediate reunification with her son.
0: Um, How quickly could a case like this get resolved?
3: So an emergency motion for a temporary restraining order uh, sort of Pushes the court to act pretty quickly. It is, it's temporary action, um, but it would force the issue a lot sooner. I should say this case only affects this woman and this family, but there are, uh, there is another case out there filed by the ACLU that is a proposed class action, and they're seeking a much broader nationwide injunction concerning reunification of families. As you noted, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has pledged a lawsuit that I think would also. Be broader than uh, a single family. We haven't seen it yet, but that's my understanding. Um, and then there are other cases out there. You know, there's a criminal case down in Texas where a magistrate judge, in the context of that criminal case, where you have another woman who's been separated from her child, she's no longer incarcerated, she's in immigration detention. But this judge is also considering whether he should, in the context of a criminal case, order federal authorities to reunite families once parents are out of criminal incarceration.
1: And, and Zoe, because I do believe that this, these are just the beginning of a lot of lawsuits like this, we'll probably be seeing. Thinking of the travel bans from earlier this year, is there a scenario in which a judge orders an injunction that like immediately stops or at least temporarily halts the uh, zero tolerance policy?
3: That's tough. Not It wouldn't necessarily be the zero-tolerance policy. These lawsuits are looking at um, the separation of families while parents and children are in immigration detention, not criminal incarceration. So zero-tolerance is a policy put forward by the Attorney General directing U.S. attorneys to criminally prosecute uh, adults who are... Uh, arrested with illegal entry. So they are jailed, they're separated from their children. What a lot of these cases deal with is is after they're incarcerated or at the point they're no longer incarcerated, that's when they're saying there is no lawful reason that it's in fact unconstitutional to keep families separated absent a finding that a parent is unfit or poses a danger to the child. There's under the Fifth Amendment, the the due process protections, which apply to non-citizens as well as citizens. Lawyers are arguing that there is a right that courts have recognized to family integrity. And that's what they're basing these cases on.
0: All right. Well, Zoe, I have a feeling we're going to have you on the show very soon in the future. Thank you so yes. much for joining us this morning.
3: Sure thing. All
1: right, well, uh, it's time for five tweets, uh, and we're going to keep them very topical today. Can you hmm. guess what we're? Is there going to be a theme? I don't know. There's, there's going to be twenty dollars on our topic All today. All right, girl, interesting. Child, I wish every time I hit this button, Corey Dowski got like a hit in the stuff hmm. Anyway, it's one let's of the, the tweets. Is a bit. Let's pretend. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> let's go for it. Brittany Daniel, pow! <laughs> Take that. On, on MSNBC, a Catholic priest was asked about Jeff Sessions quoting the Bible to justify the administration's horrific immigration policy. The priest said this. Even the devil quoted scripture.
0: Even the devil quoted scripture. <laughs> yep. It's the gift that, yep. Listen. At, to be honest, I'm just... I, that moment actually had me feeling really good to see a Catholic priest out there kind of being like, look, this is not what we as Christians, as Catholics, are supposed to be about. And I feel like there's a lot of Americans feeling that way from a lot of different religions right Mm -hmm. now.
1: Dan Reynolds yesterday talking about the Mormon church. Everybody hasn't lost their minds. Mm -hmm. And that's important to remember.
0: And that that is important to Mm -hmm. remember. All right, here we go. Southpaw, you tweeted, Trump had three-ish campaign managers. Number one is on Fox News, mocking the distress of a 10-year-old with Down syndrome. Number two is in jail for money laundering, witness tampering, and being a secret agent. Number three is thumbing his way around Europe, carrying a bindle and wearing too many shirts. Three for three. That last one, obviously, about Bannon, who uh, is in Europe, was in Europe, and basically trying to drum up these anti-Roma mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, like, look, there's a mission. There's a game plan here, and it's important to call him out.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, I, what hits me is that, at first, I thought number three was like the comedic exaggeration of where we'll end up eventually, and I was like, oh, no, that's just Steve Bannon, And, that, and we're there. It bees like that. And we're there. All right, Sam Adams, ancestor? Anyway. <laughs> Actually, they're not really cages is definitely the side of history you want to be on. Yep. Yeah, I'm not even playing with you girls in terms of are there cages or not. We are not, I am not gonna argue with you about like chain link fences. We are can, not doing that. Can
0: you believe like that? That <laughs> If you find yourself, don't you just at least have a second thought of like, mm-hmm. huh, I wonder, hmm,
1: yeah. I wonder how this is gonna
0: look, how you, this is gonna you play You got me out.
1: smooth fucked up if you think I'm gonna devote my energy to that preposterous argument.
0: All right, here's one of my favorite ones of the day. Oh God. <laughs> oh no, she tweeted, you tweeted, punches Corey Lewandowski in the dick. Womp, womp.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm pissed, and I loved it. Go for it. I I was raised in a nonviolent Buddhist household, but, girl, I just might have to. I was raised Catholic, so I was Oh, okay. All right. Let's get into it. Morning show host, what can we say? All right, tweet of the day. You ready? From Icon, Keep It Legend, Ira Madison. Let's go. Did having two white women's names combined make Kirsten bold enough to dine at a Mexican restaurant? <laughs> Questions that need answers. Sometimes you gotta laugh. Questions that need answers. Sometimes you gotta laugh. It's like, did she get a superpower when she had that? They just keep making Frozen reboots. There's like a J in there somewhere.
0: (laughs) All right, well listen, we're going live from the district next, but first, take a look at this tasty video collaboration between BuzzFeed and the UN Refugee Agency in honor
1: of World Refugee Day. Because of course it's World Refugee Day. That just, why wouldn't it be? Why not? At this point. Back. Okay, we now go live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Uh, Tarini, I'm excited about this. Where are you this morning?
4: Hey guys, we are outside MXDC. This is the Mexican restaurant where uh, DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen faced a lot of protesters last night. She was here eating dinner with her chief of staff. When a group of protesters showed up and heckled her, they repeatedly chanted, shame, shame, at her. And now the videos of those protests and her departure are all over the internet.
0: Sure are. Sure are. Do we know anything about where these protesters came from, who they were, how they knew where she was eating dinner?
4: So, our understanding is that the protesters were from the D.C. chapter of the Democratic Socialists um, and that they were tipped off by a diner who was here last night eating alongside uh, Kirsten Nielsen.
0: All right. See something, say something. Here's a tweet from Politico's Jake Sherman on Trump's visit to the Hill last night. Wow. Trump, is Mark Sanford here? I just want to congratulate him on running a great race. Room goes silent. Trump then called him a nasty guy and the
1: room booed a bit. Wait, so the, the Republicans started booing? Okay, anyway, here's a tweet from Via. Villa. Uh, it made me mad. Representative Walter Jones says about Trump comment regarding Mark Sanford, uh, said Trump talked for 45 minutes straight and no one had a chance to say anything. It's just incredible, him walking in and, you know, shaming Sanford. Anyway, Torini, along with that moment, uh, what did Trump talk about during that 45 minute meeting?
4: Right, so the president didn't really talk that much about immigration. That was a topic that Republicans really wanted to hear from him on. He talked about uh, more like his, you know, campaign rallies. He talked about tariffs and North Korea. He painted kind of a rosy picture of what the administration has been doing and didn't really leave any room for Republicans to ask him questions or even try to press him on this controversial issue of uh, migrant families being separated from their children.
0: So literally, they have questions and he's like, I'm not gonna give you time to ask it or have answers.
1: And hasn't he done this before recently, the the exact same scenario of him just kind of uh, stalling?
4: That's exactly right. He did a very similar thing when he spoke to Senate Republicans during one of their lunches. And uh, from people I've talked to, we're kind of calling this a a Trump filibuster. You know, he goes to the Hill and essentially just keeps talking so that Republicans don't have time uh, to ask him questions.
0: Filibustering his own party. That said, are we likely to see any congressional movement on this policy or any Republicans really speak up and take a stand?
4: There are Republicans who are trying to speak out, who are trying to push the president, not really using forceful language at this point, but using kind of softer language to push the president. Uh, The president did talk about two immigration bills that House Republicans are considering. He said he would endorse either of those bills. The compromise bill does deal with uh, the separation issue, Uh, but Republicans were were really looking to the president. to put his weight behind this issue, uh, behind this bill, to really endorse it strongly. And he kind of said he's fine with both. And some Republicans feel like that was not enough for them to get, to get the votes that they need to pass that bill.
1: OK. Well, Torini, I know uh, Democrats weren't invited to the filibuster fiesta uh, <laughs> last night, but what were some standout reactions from Democratic Congress people?
4: We saw some Democratic members actually outside where this meeting was happening in the basement of uh, the House on the Hill. So we saw some Democrats out there trying to protest a little bit. We saw them really get their uh, point across that what is happening at the border is not okay. Uh, But we also have uh, Democratic leaders like Chuck Schumer who've said that this is an issue that can easily resolved by the president just picking up his phone, that they're really the legislative action here is unclear what they can do in terms of actually fixing this um, issue of uh, migrant families being separated from their children, they can try to deal with the other immigration issues, for example, dealing with uh, the Dreamers. That's been an issue that's been going on for months. But on this particular issue, Democrats feel like Republicans can just push the president to pick up the phone and fix everything.
0: Pick up the phone, but he's too busy shading Mark Sanford. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News highlighting impact from your reporting, Torini. Joe Hagan, a top Trump aide, is resigning, a day after BuzzFeed News reported his ties to backers of an alleged sex cult.
4: (laughs) Tarini, what? (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, we reported on Monday that Joe Hagan, before he joined the administration, he worked for years with this Libyan client who's deeply involved in this organization called Nexium, which is being reported to be this sex cult. Uh, it's also under federal investigation right now. Uh, the client and his wife have invested tens of millions of dollars into this group. We know that Joe Hagan was also invited to one of. Uh, this organization's events in, in the French Alps. Um, Hagan told us he did not go, but he's aware of the group and his client's involvement with it, uh, but he still continued to work with him. Huh, um,
1: <laughs> I have a lot of questions, but you know, we're on limited time here. So I guess I would ask how significant is his departure? Like how influential was Joe Hagan in the White House?
4: Right. So Joe Hagan was one of those people who really kept the trains running on time. He was deputy chief of staff for operations. He was one of those people who actually had prior government experience. He's worked for every Republican president since Ronald Reagan. He was one of the point people on um, uh, the president's meeting in Singapore with the North Korean leader. So his departure is just one fewer person telling the president to not act on his instincts all the time, to actually, you know, consider the facts and and advising him in a direction where a lot of other Republicans would feel more comfortable. So uh, we're gonna see probably more departures coming this summer and the president acting more on instinct and his impulse than probably uh, we've seen yet.
0: Well, that's a shocking statement. I do wanna ask though, real quick, before we let you go, Tarini, do we know where Hagan's going next?
4: So what the White House said yesterday is that he's going to the private sector, which is interesting because in the past it had been reported that he was considering going to the CIA uh, after our story, and there were rumors about potential uh, other stories coming up um, because there are some Trump loyalists who weren't a fan of Hagan because of his prior experience working for George Bush. Uh, He decided, it seems, to just join the private sector instead of staying in the federal government.
1: All right. Well, Torini, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. And I just love that you're in front of that restaurant.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Uh, up next, I speak with poet Roger Reeves. It's time for another Poets Hotline, very topical this morning. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Poets Hotline. And right now I'm joined by Roger Reeves, Whiting Award-winning poet and author of the incredible poetry collection, King Me. Roger, good morning. Good morning, Said. How are you? I'm doing well, all things considered. Um, Well, let's get into it. Um, Your poem, Children Listens, feels prescient. I saw it being shared and discussed so much yesterday. Uh, Could you read it for us?
5: Yes. Children, listen. It turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. The body in flames will not be the body in flames, but just a house fire ignored. The black sails of that solitary burning boat rubbing along the legs of lovers flung into a Roman sky by a carousel. The lovers too sick in their love to notice a man drenched in fire on a porch or a child aflame flame mistaken for a dog mistaken for a child, running to tell of a bomb that did not knock before it entered in Gaza with its glad tidings of abundant joy. In Kizmiras, a god is weeping in a window, one golden hand raised above his head as if he slipped on the slick rag of the future. Our human kindnesses, unremarkable as the flies rubbing their legs together while standing on a slice of cantaloupe. Children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves.
1: wildly over the graves. Um, I guess to start, Roger, where did this poem start for you? What was the first spark?
5: The first spark actually started with uh, the image of the god in the window, which I saw in Krakow in 2012. It's a stained glass window uh, that's really beautifully done at this Basilica, uh, in, in Krakow. And I, and it was just, it was God with a flaw, right? God worried or troubled, which is not the way that I grew up sort of thinking about God. And then the next part, portion of the poem that sort of came were the last three lines, actually. Um, I heard those last three lines and I wondered sort of where they came from. And so I was over the years, I've just been playing with them, playing through, thinking about Czesław Miłosz and sort of his poems about the end of the world. And then this current moment, right? Um, I think that poetry is a way of knowing why we must change. adrian Rich said, poetry is not revolution, but a way of knowing why it must come. And so I wanted to sort of create a poem that instructed the children, right? Um, in this moment in
1: particular. Yeah, and our minds are on so many children right now, from Parkland, as you mentioned, to Gaza, and certainly the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I guess I also was curious, you know, um, I love seeing poems on the timeline, on Twitter, um, and seeing how they kind of illuminate the conversation. Uh, what did it feel like? What was kind of going through your mind as it was published, and you're seeing the way people are drawing connections to the news? I, for me...
5: As a poet, that's the only way to be relevant, mm-hmm. right? We, we make the news, right? Or we're, we're part of the news. We should be thinking about ourselves as part of the everyday. So for me, I'm, I'm, I, I believe that's the only way a poet should be seen in a lot of ways, is as they're making news or as they're sort of thinking through the moment and allowing art and poetry in particular to be a document of that moment, mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And I guess one more question, you know, and I feel poets are the people to ask this question to, um, when words like cages or infested and certainly fake and, and news, you know, are, are being manipulated and, and debated, um, where do poets kind of enter the conversation about language and, and accuracy? That's a great question. I think where, where we enter the, the conversation is, we enter it
5: because what we're interested in doing is we want to sort of test the efficacy of those words in those particular circumstances. We wanna think about the imagination that creates that sort of usage, right? So I always think about when someone's using the term cages, right? To think through what does it mean to be ensnared, to be encaged? Why would we be using this language? How does this language actually work against the process of sort of making someone seen, right? And I think the poet, that's their main job is to interrogate language, to think about the ways in which language is used and is weaponized against folks, right? So I think the poet, we need poets right now to actually be thinking through this language to really sort of um, break apart the language and make sure that we're seeing all the nuances and the ways in which these words are, and the way in which politicians in particular are using these words. And when I say politicians, really, I'm talking about Trump here in this moment in his administration, the way in which they're sort of, thinking about moving words into what we might call a post truth or a post fact era right they're they're sort of making lies seem as though they are in fact truth when in fact they're nothing but lies right so i think the poet is there to investigate the lie
1: absolutely the poet is there to investigate the lie well roger thank you so much for your poem and thank you for joining us this morning thank you sir All right, friends. Up next, Isaac is going to talk with Dan Vergano about Trump's plan for a new Space Force.
0: For everyone that maybe feels like we're living through a bad science fiction movie, Dan Vergano, BuzzFeed News science reporter and national treasure, is here to walk me through Trump's latest Space Force. Dan, how are you doing this morning? I'm
6: good, how are you Isaac,
0: I'm good. I'm doing good, Uh, you know, thinking about the militarization of space. Uh, I wanna start here, what is Space Force? Uh, Are we trying to fight aliens? Is, uh, if I signed up for it, would they forgive my student loans?
6: Uh, They would pay to send you to night school to get that electrical engineering degree uh, that you always want, Uh, and uh, you know, you'd get to spend a lot of time in Fort Collins or Colorado Springs looking at a screen, that would be dynamite, I'm sure. Um, Rather than aliens, what they'll mostly be fighting are the other uh, branches of the armed services, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force for money. That is mostly a uh, thing to let them fight it out for uh, more uh, war machines and uh, money in the Pentagon. All right, That I mean, I
0: wanna get into how this affects all the branches of the government in just a second. But first, you shared this piece by BuzzFeed News' own Cora Lewis. You wrote, the president has once again directed the Pentagon to create a space force. So how many times has he pushed for this And
6: is it actually sticking this time? This is the third time, and this is the most serious time. He's actually directed them to do something. Uh, Whether it sticks or not is up to the Congress. The uh, Senate just finished his defense bill. The House has to wrestle with that. If they put language in there saying uh, we're cool with this and uh, passed it, then presumably the president could sign into law a sixth branch of the armed services. But it's not so simple as that. Um, of course, there's not people. In, there's some people in Congress who think it's a great idea. Some people who don't. And typically, you just don't uh, on a whim just because the president says let's do it. Uh, create a whole new uh, building on the Pentagon. You know, make it into a hexagon. <laughs> just make
0: another wing. All right. Dab's mom tweeted: Why are we trying to create a space force when we don't even have the technology to tell us what our pets are saying to us? Like, get your priorities straight. The creation of a space force has been a topic of debate for. Years. I mean, again, I, my mind, of course, goes straight to we have NASA, we have an Air Force, we have a Navy. Uh, why is this always just been this constant
6: debate? Uh, well, uh, it turns out if you are running an Air Force, um, you might want to spend your money on airplanes and promote people who uh, fly airplanes and not so much spend them on space got stuff and people who fly satellites. So the people who do that sort of thing for the Air Force um, really, really, really would like a uh, Space Force of their own so they can promote each other to be generals and have control of the money. Uh, so instead of going to F-35s, it goes to, you know, buying rockets and more satellites like they want. Uh, in Congress, there's a serious sort of concern that the Air Force is too high-bound and uh, not spending enough money on uh, a resilient, they call it, um, Space Force. to handle um, the Russians, the Chinese, suddenly blowing a bunch of our satellites out of the sky. Uh, we've been too busy spending money on bombers and fighters. So that's where the tension has come from mostly.
0: All right, so so it's a play for money. But Dan, you yourself in the 90s, right? You were an aerospace engineer. Um, do Wow, look at that. Look at that. That, is a, that. that was a surprise to me. Very beautiful mustache, Dan Vergano. Um, excuse me while I collect my thoughts real quick. I didn't know you were such a handsome man in your younger years. I always knew you were handsome now. Uh, But seriously, as somebody that has been involved with this, to me, this kind of seems shocking that we're gonna have these kinds of conflicts. You're talking about kind of senders and Congress wanting to control the money. Um, How do the branches of the government feel about Trump's calling for this?
6: The Defense Department hates it. The Air Force in particular. Last year, the Air Force secretary said she didn't want it. I mean, why would she wanna lose control over all the money and personnel uh, that come with being the Space Force, actually, which is what the Air Force is. The, there's a National Reconnaissance Office in NASA, as you say, but the Air Force is very uh, heavily involved with those as well. Um, the Defense Secretary last year said he doesn't want it. I mean, why does he want another bureaucracy to fight with? Essentially, he has five branch bureau chief, branch chiefs, actually, uh, fighting with each other for money now. He wants another one, a sixth one, to, to add to the fight and demand more money, that's and that's a headache for him. But uh, this call by the president, the direction to take a look into it is him telling the Defense Department to get in line and at least think about how they would do it. Um, so we'll see. We
0: will see. Well, Dan, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I highly recommend you maybe think about bringing back that mustache.
6: Think about it. Isaac, I'll I'll give it serious thought that it considers much like this direction to create an Air Force, Space Force, rather.
0: Very nice rap there, Dan. Really appreciate it. Uh, Listen, don't go away. Up next, Ben Smith is sitting down with Dan Pfeiffer.
7: I'm joined by Dan Pfeiffer, former communications director to uh, President Barack Obama, one of the hosts of Pod Save America, and um, when I, back when I covered him, one of the people who I think understood the convergence of politics in media, one of, the, one of the few people who wasn't totally shocked when I left political reporting and came to work for BuzzFeed. He's the author of Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you something first about these kind of changed politics, yeah. which is that... It seems like Barack Obama continues to play by the old rules. I think all we've, you know, there's this huge crisis right now around the separation of kids and parents at the border. All we've heard from him is a retweet of Michelle Obama's
8: tweet of Laura Bush's statement. You know, why, why is he silent? Well, I haven't talked to him this week about any of his decision-making around this. I think, so I, I will answer this question in the context of what, what I know of him from working for him and knowing for him over a decade, which is he always wants to weigh in at the moment where he thinks he can be most effective to what is the longer, larger strategic goal here. Mm-hmm. And so the, fir- uh, the former first lady weighed in, along with Laura Bush, along with previous former first ladies, about this issue. And that, and maybe maybe the view is that, in this case, mothers may be the best vehicles. I think if he saw a moment where he said, if I come out and speak, if I were to tweet or give a speech or Snapchat or whatever your thing in the moment would be, and that would make an actual difference in reuniting these children with his parents, he would absolutely do it. If it was just for the purpose of making himself feel better or making, or just making his supporters feel better with, with no actual impact, then it wouldn't make sense. This is a debate we would have in the White House all the time. It's not, like, as president, it's not his job to narrate the news. It's his job to speak to the country and move an agenda forward.
7: The current president does seem to think it's his job to live-tweet the news. Yes,
8: yes, yes. It, like, literally. While I used to mean it in terms of, like, narrate the events of the world. He means right. literally to narrate the news happening on one network. Yeah.
7: Yeah. I mean, I wonder, do, do you think—because I also think there's a sense, a very traditional sense, there's only one president at a time, that the tradition—you know, that George W. Bush stayed out of Barack Obama's way. And that there's a traditionalism to him that is about that he's not going to be out there as a public figure during his successor's presidency, which feels I don't know who made that rule. I'm not sure it's a rule anymore. Do you you think he's sort of constrained by these old media rules, these old political rules?
8: I think it's he's actually thinking about this in terms of new politics, which is so right now, let's take the child separation issue, which you have for one of the rare moments in Trump's presidency, you have Republicans actually speaking out against Trump on this. And so one way to change that dynamic, and you know, Mitch McConnell said yesterday, I assume this to be true, that every Republican senator would support a bill that would end this child separation policy. One way to change that would be to polarize the issue around Obama, and to send everyone back, like for this moment people have come out of their corners, their sort of tribal partisan corners, and if Obama got in the middle of it, maybe that would send it the other direction. And that, that we also had to make those decisions in the White House when you were dealing with House Republicans, where if he took a victory lap on some sort of legislation they had to pass, Then they wouldn't pass it, and so I, I think it's more understanding the nature of polarized politics today and where you can have impact as a partisan voice.
7: Uh, Specifically on the immigration crisis, do you, do you, do you feel like in retrospect that you guys opened some of these doors? I mean, I think you know the border has never been a has always has horrible things been happening at the border continuously for many years. There was a decision to classify some of these migrants as national security threats, that Trump has obviously wildly expanded. But do you, I mean, in retrospect, do you think those were mistakes?
8: I think it was, I think that this is one of the hardest issues, where you're trying to find this balance between the law and basic humanity and morality and our values. And I think we did the best we could. I think there's no question that at times the the actual implementation of our policies or laws didn't live up to the values in which we wanted to do. you know, maybe no one is anticipated no one anticipated having a president like Trump who would view children being separated from their parents as some sort of bargaining. Is literally like we always talk about hostage taking in politics, and now we are literally dealing with actual child hostages in order to try to get a wall built. And I think we like in it are we made the best immigration decisions we could? They weren't always done. They weren't always perfect. They weren't always right. That doesn't excuse or what is happening right now because we could have made this decision. That Trump did. Bush could have made a decision, Obama could have made a decision, and and we didn't because we thought it was inhumane and immoral, and Trump made that decision. And he has to own that, and it's up to his party to also help fix this, because they, they control government. Democrats can only do so much here. Do you,
7: do you, I don't know if this is how you see yourself, but I've always seen sort of like a lot of the former Obama-AIDS project is partly about his legacy and your legacy in the White House. And I wonder if you used to see I think there's that there's sort of a challenge to his legacy right now. I think many, many Democrats on his last day in office saw him as, you know, the great president of their lifetimes. Now I think people see him as, among other things, the guy who got you Trump. And I wonder if you worry I, about that.
8: I worry. I don't worry about his legacy in terms of what the history books are going to write. I think that's a fool's errand. Who knows what's going to be written? Uh, you know, presidents are viewed very differently decades down the line. Truman was. Uh, demeaned in the moment and seen as a great president uh, decades later. I, what I worry about are the actual things we worked for that we think, correctly I believe, but we think helped people, made a real difference in this country, being eroded not, for some, not out of some coherent, differing view of government. It's not like, this is not as if Jeb Bush should become president, it's like we're going to change Obamacare to make it more market-friendly because we're market-friendly conservatives where it's simply just sort of this nihilistic knock the blocks over toddler temper tantrum just because it has something with like Obama's name on it. And so I worry about the real-world policy impacts as opposed to what the next Doris Kearns Goodwin is going to write about Barack Obama in 2050. I want to get to 2050, and then I can worry about what gets written in the history books later.
7: um, In the book, you write that Democrats need to get better at storytelling. And I think there's right now, I mean, I think pretty soon we're all going to be consumed by the 2020 election, by President Trump's live tweets of the Democratic primary. And it seems like there's... a. You know, or to, should should that story the Democrats are telling should it be about like a return to normalcy in some sense, or do you think? And I think other people are saying, well, no, Democrats sort of need their own Trump. They need someone who is, who has his sort of fluency in this moment.
8: My friend David Axelrod always says that president that elections are about in nominating processes in presidential elections are about finding the replacement, not the replica. I think it'd be a huge mistake if Democrats looked at trump and said we need our own trump we need i think it's a mistake i I joke about this to be a paler shade of orange right we have to we 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 cannot win that way. we have different strategies this is part of a polarized america republicans win when fewer people vote that is just a simple fact of the nature of who is of the voting age in america right now and so trump want you trump is a perfect candidate for republicans because he can. He's very good at making it seem like the choice doesn't matter, to breed cynicism, to breed anger and division, to make it so messy you don't want to get involved if you're a, uh, you know, a potential voter. Democrats, I think, need to, as I write in the book, need to take the lessons of Obama and update them to the modern era because Obama didn't run against Trump. But the lessons
7: of Obama, rather than the lessons of Trump.
8: Yes, absolutely. That we we need to be inspirational, hopeful. I think we should be the bizarro Trump. Like I think we should just because he lies all the time. We shouldn't lie. We should be so assiduously fact-based that our arguments are impossible to pierce, to pierce. You know, Obama used to tell us when he would give a speech, and he would, he would call it this. Will, uh, this annoys me to say this publicly. He called the Pinocchio test. He was he gave a speech about Paul Ryan's budget in 2010, and he told uh, Gene Sperling, who was the it, doing the the economic advisor at the time, he said, "Gene, I want I don't want a single Pinocchio referring to the Washington Post fact checker." for this speech. I it's going to make him feel very good. Yeah. The Washington Post Fact Checker is going to feel great. Gene, too. And, but, and so I think we need to take that approach, because people are so cynical right now that if you give them an inch to say, you put too much spit on this ball, they'll think you're just like Trump. So we have to be inspirational, hopeful, thoughtful. And fact-based. And
7: finally, for our for our audience out on Twitter, you are the author as well as of this great book of one of history's worst tweets. Yes. Which I think I don't even want to like attempt to tell yeah. exactly tell the yeah. story of or yes. repeat it. Yes. Involved being under anesthesia. Yes. Do not tweet under anesthesia. Yes. I just wondered if you had any other like lessons for that you had learned from that about navigating Twitter.
8: Well, I think read your tweet before you tweet it. That would be one. Don't tweet under anesthesia. If you want to hear that story, buy the book. Um, and But my lesson for Democrats, I spent a lot of time on Twitter in this book because Twitter has changed politics in a whole host of ways. Many bad, some very good, I think. But it is the now, the, it's sort of the lingua franca of politics. You've got to be good at it. And that means being authentic and real. And this is where, as much as we hate Trump's tweets, they are a window into his soul in that moment. And if you're if you're a Democratic politician and your tweet looks like a 280-character version of the press release you're going to put out, then it's not real. It has to sound, you have to speak in the language. Seem real, seem authentic. Don't do it under anesthesia. Check your typos, because in my case, they can be devastating, uh, and, but you've got to get good at it. And if, our, and our ne- if we're not good at it, we're not gonna win, as sad as that may be.
7: Well, Dan Pfeiffer, author of Yes, We Still Can. Thank you so much That's for, uh, for yeah. joining us on Am to dm
9: author of 90s Bitch, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. Alison, thank you so much for joining me.
10: Thanks for having me.
9: So you grew up in the 90s, as did I, and I find when I'm going back to read about these things that I thought I knew about, you know, like Monica Lewinsky or Marsha Clark or all of these women, I realized I didn't really understand them to the level that I thought I did. So how did your perception of the decade change writing this book from what you
10: thought the 90s were really about? So the 90s are such an important decade. It's one that we're really romanticizing in a lot of ways right now. I was 8 to 18 in the 90s. And when I returned to the decade, it was with the tremendous nostalgia that you're describing. Uh, But what I found turning my journalistic lens on the decade is that, universally, women who had power were reaching for power, uh, were in politics or entertainment or news headlines. They were systematically what I call bitchified. They were thwarted. Their progress was thwarted. They were objectified. Defied and undermined by a media narrative that created sort of the idea that these women, women were bitches, and everyone from Monica Lewinsky to Hillary Clinton, Anita Hill, Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding—name a woman from that decade, she received this treatment. That was shocking to find to me that all of those women did.
9: Yeah, I mean, growing up in the '90s, we—I feel like there was a—it was a very girl power era, right? Uh, so we, as young women, were being taught you can do anything, girl power, all of this stuff.
10: How did that conflict with the reality of how women were actually treated in the 90s? Well, girl power was this mantra that we internalized, right? It sort of came out of the riot girl movement, which was a very important political and musical movement at the time that fought for, uh, you know, women's choice against domestic violence, was sort of out there with, you know, loud, brash, sort of putting female anger into the cultural conversation. Uh, But what happened was the idea of girl power was kind of extracted from that progressive movement and it was used by marketers to sell girls on all kinds of different things, buying t-shirts that said girl power, the sort of idea that you could purchase empowerment was really present in teen magazines and in a lot of the marketing that we saw in the 1990s.
9: You just mentioned the term bitchification, which is a funny term, but please explain to me what exactly that meant.
10: So bitchification, 90s bitch is the title of the book, but it's not a promotion of the term bitch. The fact was that during the 1990s, the word bitch was used to undermine and objectify and systematically thwart women. So that's what bitchification is. It's really that systematic process that applies to all of these women. When I returned to the decade, I was pretty convinced that all of these women were problematic. I had heard at the time that Courtney Love was toxic or that... Um, Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor from the O.J. Simpson trial, that she was a bitch. But what actually was happening was, there was a media narrative that was painting all of these women in this way. It wasn't that their individual characters were problematic. It was that they were subject to a campaign of sexism.
9: Yeah, and I was reading your book yesterday, and you talk a lot about Marsha Clark in particular. I wanted to bring her up because when I was watching the O.J. Simpson uh, show a few years back, I, you know, I am a huge true crime person. I thought I had read everything about the case. And watching it, it was shocking to me, the way that the media treated Marsha Clark for simply doing her job. Uh, And I feel like in the past few years, people have taken a step back and started to realize, like, oh, maybe she wasn't who the media sold us on in the 90s. Why do you think right now people have started to realize the way that they treated women was problematic back then?
10: Well, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with Marcia Clark, and I interviewed her for this book. And she really, at the time, said, you know, I didn't see the sexism in the way that I was being treated. And frankly, journalists who covered the trial, who sat within, you know, spitting distance from Clark during the trial, who were women, also didn't see the sexism. Why are we seeing it now? I think it takes sort of our, you know, our journalists and our historians to kind of look back at these conversations and say, you know, what actually was happening? I think that... you know, we we have done a good job of sort of revisiting some of these stories. There's a lot of '90s nostalgia in our culture right now, and that's because Marcia Clark was in this series. We saw, you know, Tanya Harding. The movie I Tanya is very popular. Um, people are reconsidering a lot of these women individually, but I would argue that we need to reconsider them on the whole, and we need to look at this culture and climate, this media narrative of sexism that kept women down. And it's it's true also that we have made tremendous progress since the '90s in a lot of ways. I mean, women now. Uh, make up about 20 percent of the United States Congress. More women are represented in Hollywood and in Washington and in television. But it's really it's a matter of now that we have this new voice that we're able to create with this more um, this better representation, we need to sort of look at the sexism that exists today, too.
9: Yeah, for sure. You wrote a lot also about Roseanne Barr, who obviously has been in the news recently. Her series was canceled after she made some pretty horribly racist uh, comments on Twitter. So obviously she was a big cultural figure in the 90s. How do you think what has just happened impacts her legacy
10: as a feminist and I guess the her cultural impact So something really interesting happened to me with this book. I finished the manuscript and handed it in, and in the few month period between finishing the book and it becoming bound books, Roseanne reemerged, became like a sensation, (laughs) and then flamed out. Um, So I would say my perspective on Roseanne in the 1990s is that she was an incredibly important figure in defining American comedy. Um, She's just as important in defining American comedy in the 90s as Jay Leno or Jerry Seinfeld, but we don't look at her in that way. She was called, you know, overweight. She was sort of mocked for um, skewering the domestic goddess trope, which was really at the heart of some of her comedy in the 90s. Was kind of an important. Uh, moment. And, you know, I think she deserves credit for that kind of uh, that comedy that she created at the time. I mean, her tweets were absolutely racist. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't celebrate what she did on Twitter then or today. But I think at the time, she really is not recognized for the role that she had.
9: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So where what do you think we still have to do moving forward? Obviously, we're not there yet. And you know, reading your book and talking about these issues, what are some things that we can take from the 90s to really push, you know, feminism forward to get even more equality than what we have now?
10: It's so important that we don't romanticize this decade. I mean, there's a ton of incredible sort of culture that came out of the 90s. But we really need to know our history. And right now, we don't know the real history of the 90s. We need to read the real history. We need to see the way that bitchification was used to systematically thwart the progress of women. And we need to address the ways in which that sort of trickles into today. During the 90s, there was a media revolution, 24-hour news and the cable news cycle sort of began. at the Early uh, in the early 90s, and that was a time when women became relentless content. Women were the subjects of all of those stories. Um, we are. In the midst of another media revolution right now, and it's social media. And in many ways, women are still in the crosshairs. It's very different. We have more voice and sort of more perspective than we've ever had. But, you know, some 80% of women said in a recent survey that they have experienced online harassment before. We don't need statistics to tell us that women experience online harassment. But the new variety of sexism that has sort of come about because we have more voice and because we have more perspective, sort of as women, uh, we need to to figure that out too. Yeah, yeah,
9: for sure. Allison, thank you so much for joining me. 90s Bitch is available now. Go read it. (laughs) Up next, Isaac and Said, react to your tweets.
1: Hi, hi. What a morning. I am so excited. Allison's book again, 90s Bitch. I got a copy. I was like, oh, thank you. Uh, It just sounds incredible. I'm excited to read it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That was a great conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, so we were talking earlier about Carla Zapudowski's uh, story on how the separation policy is impacting people on the other side of the border, what's going on in Mexico and Central America, the miscommunication and and the terror they're fleeing amidst all that miscommunication. Ben Smith, this is what he had to say about that story. My replies to Carla's Full of people who think the ends of scaring both asylees and undocumented immigrants justify the cruelest means, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a rather disturbing uh, response. But again, as, as we were saying earlier this morning, um, I feel like it's a feature, not a bug. I think this fear uh, and this impact is a negotiation tactic. 100%.
0: Added.
1: A brutal, inhumane one.
0: And, you know, we started the show an hour ago, and I feel like this other conversations are happening now, too. You've got Corey Landowski kind of defending his comments, and a lot of people coming out to be like, oh, well, you're just not picking up on the context of it. And again, there's so many people ready
1: to step up and defend these actions. Right. And and Corey Landowski's uh, tweet this morning at 9:30. it's absolutely in line with the way John Stanton pointed to trying to deflect to the Obama administration and no one talked about what happened and obviously a lot of people have so Anyway, uh, Pixmaven reacted to journalists like Rachel Maddow and us. We're rather <laughs> emotional at times. I mean, this is what you had to say. It's so very important that journalists show their human side. Yes, objectivity is key, but journalists are human, and the news is a fucking nightmare 24-7. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I-, I think this is one of the things that's nice about being a journalist in this day and age mm. um, is that there is an allowance for for you to have a personality, and I think it's one of the things that Buzzfeed and Buzzfeed News has really done a great job of encouraging. Um, so I feel free to be myself uh, when I'm up here with you. You know, of course, that sometimes means I get emotional or I get upset, but I think that is part of processing this information as it comes in.
1: Yeah, and recognizing where you fit into the conversation. I think journalists like Torini Party, for mm-hmm. example, um, so gracefully navigate, you know, focusing on the reporting. She does not really tend to center herself in her own opinions and what's going on. And I think that's valuable. And then, you know, Isaac and I can enter the conversation in a different way. Um, because I'm not going to be a part of gaslighting people. I'm not gonna stand here with a straight face and a plastic smile um, and just ask like, it's just another day in America. It's not just another normal day at all, so.
0: 100%. Well, Michelle Stevens with a political thought here. Over the past century, this country has simultaneously expanded the definition of who is white while also narrowing the definition of who is human. Whew. All right. I show. mean, yeah, I mean like look, this he is the other that. Thing. It's not another day in America yeah. except It
1: is another day in America, and there's a long history here. A long, long history that a lot of people are drawing parallels to, right? The history of internment camps, the history of Ellis Island. I mean, you just, we're paying attention, all right? Uh, Rita Mac, you pulled this great quote from poet Roger Reese. I was so happy we were able to have him join this morning. It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. He's just so eloquent. The poet is there to investigate the lie. Um, I woke up this morning, and one of the first things I did was start reading um, Terrence Hayes' new book. He's going to be on the show uh, later this week, I believe, his poetry collection. And it just kind of reminded me that as language is being kind of manipulated and warped, you know, poetry's job, again, is to kind of look at language uh, dead on. And so I just, it's a It's an art, and it's valuable inherently, but also it's a valuable resource, I think, in terms of- And in times like
0: this, you need to turn to art. You need to turn to the written word, Mm -hmm. or these spaces where you can really think about what's going on here, um, and and again, how it matches up with history. Well, listen, thank you so much to our guests, John Stanton, Zoe Tillman, Torini Party, Roger Reeves, again, fantastic, Dan Vergano, Stephanie McNeil, Ben Smith, Allison Yarrow, and Dan Pfeiffer. What a wonderful conversation that That was was between him and Ben. That
1: was really cool. Ben didn't shade anybody. It
0: was like his shade setting, was like at a one <laughs> he at a turned one it down. Yeah, he turned anyway it down.
1: thank you all for joining us we will see you tomorrow it will be thursday nice job be thursday we got that yeah you got 10 it 10 a.m we'll see you <laughs>